Well, I was born and raised in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, New York, to a poor family, and I always wanted to be famous as long as I can remember. That voice belongs to singer-songwriter Neil Sedaka. He's responsible for some of the biggest hits of the 1960s and 70s. And even if you're not the biggest music fan, I bet you've heard the phrases, love will keep us together, and breaking up is hard to do. And for that, you can thank Neil. I was the king of the doobie-doos and the tra-la-las. It became a Neil Sedaka trademark. I think I even overdid it too much. I knew that there was something in that combination of words and music of breaking up is hard to do. And I hoped that the record would come out as well as it did. I called it the sandwich song because it started with a piece of bread, which was down, dooby-doo, down, down. Then the meat of the song, don't take your love away from me. And it ended with a piece of bread again, down, dooby-doo, down, down. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Now I know, I know that it's true. Breaking Up is Hard to Do was a massive hit worldwide, jumping to number one on the charts in August of 1962. And while Neil Sedaka might not be a household name anymore, he's one of Billboard's most successful pop stars of all time. In fact, from 1959 to 1963, Neil Sedaka became the second best-selling artist next to Elvis Presley. He sung three number one hits over two decades and wrote top 20 hits that charted in five decades, which puts him in a unique class of legendary artists who have been able to transcend pop trends and reach success across wildly different musical eras. Now, you might be wondering, why the heck am I a millennial interested in a pop star who got a star in the 1950s. Well, besides being an old soul, there's something else you need to know. Neil Sedaka is my uncle. Your mother and my wife are sisters. Dr. Strasberg, your mom, and my wife, Lieber. We are celebrating 59 years of marriage. Wow. Wow. I'll tell you this much. If I just live to 59 years, I, I, I'm doing something half decently. And your marriage has made it to 59 years. So bravo on that. Don't ask me how. She put up with a lot of crap. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a real music geek. And he pointed out that Neil is a rare pop star who wrote his own songs. This took me on a statistical journey that I realized was much larger than just my uncle. Uncle Neil's career started when the pathway to fame was fairly straightforward. An artist could write their own songs, get them on the radio, and sell records. But the music industry of Neil's day wouldn't recognize the music industry of today. It's a place where a gay black rapper can achieve crossover success in country music and where a folk artist turned pop star can do an acoustic cover of a trap song. And for those of you who may be curious, no, I didn't know what trap music was before today. Shalom, folks. I'm Harry Enten, and this is Margins of Error. Now, I've had a personal link to many of the episodes we've done this season, but this episode is an homage to a man whose apartment I visited as a child 
and whose walls are adorned with gold and platinum records. I wanted to look at Uncle Neil's legacy and how it relates to the changing music industry. I'll be asking the questions, what does success mean in an age when there are so many different artists, genres of music, platforms for consumption, and metrics for stardom? Would the king of the doobie-doos make it in today's music world? I have here that you're called a rock anomist. And I, what the heck is that? Don't try saying that word after three pints of strong gassy lager. This is Will Page, the author, host of the podcast Bubble Trouble, former chief economist at Spotify, and my go-to expert on the changing nature of the music industry. Well, back in 2006, I got lucky. Yeah, I got to merge my two passions, music and then economics, hence the rock anomist title. So my uncle was a singer-songwriter in Mm. the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s. His name was Neil Sedaka. Wow. Oh, Oh my God. My knees just went trembly. (laughs) He wrote four number one songs, I believe, and that does not include Amarillo, which is huge, huge in the United Kingdom, right, for Tony Christie. Yeah, for soccer fans, they sing that song when their team score goals. And I think that's a great testament to songwriters when the football fans are still singing your song after all these years. Well, I'm in awe of Neil's work, so I've now got nervous. You made me nervous on a podcast. It used to be that there was one place you turned to when you wanted to gauge your success as a pop artist, something that Neil swore by. My Bible was the Billboard Top 100. In my day, I was very conscious of what number it reached on the Top 100, how many weeks it stayed. It was a a great thrill when you saw it on the chart as a number one record. For better or worse, charts have traditionally been the barometer of pop success. And I was curious to get Will's read on whether or not they still have any relevance today. What do charts do? They make popular visible, and they make the visible more popular. End of story. Here's Tom with the weather. And Neil Sedaka's story just justifies that observation. Up until streaming took over, charts were the dominant force in the business. Who won the Grammys? Who actually gives two S-words about who wins this stuff anymore. I'll tell you who. The industry does, but I don't think the consumer does. The conversation used to be driven by charts. Now the conversation is happening elsewhere. It's happening on TikTok. So if you think about the ability to offer comments, what if I could comment on the music, reciprocate with the exchange of the creator with a response from the audience? Why do we clap? You know, what's the origins of clapping? Comments matter. The conversation for me is on YouTube comments, SoundCloud comments, but especially on TikTok with comments as well. The party's over there. It's not in Billboard charts. So it's really about engagement. But if, as Will says, we're not using charts to guide our listening choices, how are we engaging with our music? They're pressing a piece of glass. That's the way that we engage with music. We press our thumb on a piece of glass and we have access to approximately 70 million unique songs. And those songs will play instantly as soon as you press that piece of glass. That speaks to a larger psychological shift in the way we engage with our entertainment. We expect it to be instantaneous. We no longer have to trudge uphill both ways seven miles in the snow to buy the latest pop record. 
But all these new music platforms have led to an explosion of choice. All right, let me just ask a quick anatomy question. Where is your jaw right now? Is it connected to your cheekbones? I believe that it is, yes. Great. So be prepared as it's about to drop to the floor. If you think about when records began, you were looking at about 30,000 albums coming out back in the age of the 70s and the 80s. Then if you move on to the 90s, the 18, 90,000, 100,000 albums in the age of the iTunes era... And what we saw at the start of this year was there was 55,000 songs a day, a day being released on streaming. That was then updated to 65,000. And I can wrap it up by saying now it stands well above 75,000. More music has been released a day today on streaming platforms than was released in a calendar year back in the early 90s. You are correct. My jaw, if it was physically able to, You know, I'm only one man and I'm not a cartoon, but if it was physically able to, it would be right through the floor at this point. (laughs) 75,000 songs are uploaded a day. A day! As opposed to 30,000 albums in a full calendar year in the 70s when Uncle Neil was charting. So I'm curious, what does all this choice in content mean for a listener? Does it make it easier or harder to discover new artists? And do we even need all this choice? But who's asking for it? It's not like there's people marching up and down 6th Avenue saying, give us 75,000 songs every day. You know, where's the demand for this choice? That's what I'm struggling with, which is it's happened. It's great that it's happening. The democratization of access, everyone can get to the market. I dig it. But where was the demand for this choice? And that's where the, the story gets kind of spicy. And when you say it gets kind of spicy, are you leaving that as an open question? Or you want to expound upon that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it's, it's the concept of the long tail. The idea is take a bookstore, for example, you stack them high and sell them cheap. That's the head of your distribution, a small amount of titles, make up the lion's share of demand. And then at the back of the bookstore, you've got all your niche titles. And there's a large amount of titles, make up a small amount of demand. Now, let's go to 2004. Chris Anderson wrote a very famous blog article in Wired magazine called The Long Tail. And his premise was, when you offer the consumer more choice, they will take that choice. And demand will move away from the head and down towards the tail. And the tail gets longer, more choice, and fatter, more demand. And that's been a hugely influential concept. What I think is interesting is, you remember Tower Records, right? I do. It was There was a Tower Records <laughs> on Broadway. I remember it well. I got to speak to Ross Solomon about how he ran Tower Records. He said, in every store, we would offer a unique list of 40,000 album titles for the consumer to choose from. 40,000. That was his magic number. And if you come in and ask for that Stevie Ray Vaughan record and it's not there, well, I'll take one title off and bring that title in because it's earned its place in my store. How much would the level of choice that Tower Records offered then equate to in demand terms today? So streaming services offer 70 million songs. What would happen if they only offered the top 40,000 unique album titles? And the answer is they'd keep 90 to 95% of their business. That's nuts. So for all of this choice on the supply side, on the demand side, it's broadly similar to what Russ Solomon did with Tower Records throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So what have we learned? It's basically, there's a lot of choice being offered, but there may not be the market for all that choice. When barriers to entry fall, 
I believe supply exceeds demand. And I'm seeing it happen everywhere. It's a taboo topic. I'm not asking for the return of gatekeepers. But I think we have to stare up to the fact, which is that some choice is better than none. But it doesn't necessarily follow that more choice is better than some. How much choice is enough? A little later, we'll talk about the democratization of music and why it might be a good thing that the so-called barriers to entry have fallen. But first, I want to dig in a little more into pop music's relationship with the Billboard charts. Will Page said that listeners today don't follow charts the way that they used to. But he also said it still matters to the industry and to artists like Uncle Neil. And since, well, this is a show about stats, I thought it was important to talk to a Billboard insider about Uncle Neil's chart legacy. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. That song was one of Neil Sedaka's biggest hits, the 1960s song Calendar Girl. It was Neil's fifth hit song in two years and his first top five hit. We're talking about how the pop music industry has changed since Neil's heyday in the 60s and 70s. I'm asking the question, what does success mean in today's pop music world? Uncle Neil had hits he sang and wrote on the Billboard charts over the course of four decades, which puts him in a very small minority. He's one of only about 120 artists with at least three number one hits ever on the Hot 100. I got to chat about this with someone with deep insider knowledge of the Billboard charts. We have so many charts at Billboard. Sometimes it feels like too many. We've got over 200, 250 weekly charts measuring so many different metrics. That's Gary Trust, charts expert at Billboard. He spends his days and nights wading through Billboard's extensive data trove. So we have song charts, we have album charts. Among that, we have charts uh, based on just album sales, album streaming, the track sales from albums. Uh, we've got radio ear- So Neil was one of about 120 artists ever 
with at least three number one hits on the Billboard charts. And he was one of only about 80 artists who also wrote those number one hits, which he did with a lyricist, either Howard Greenfield or Phil Cody. Today, pop songs tend to be written by a large team of writers, and the Neil Sedaka method of writing songs with just a single collaborator is extremely rare. Even more rare is the pop star who writes all alone. I'll actually put you on the spot, Harry. How many songs do you think on the current Billboard Hot 100 this week, as we're recording this, were written by one person? Five. Good guess, because it's, it's such a small number. One. Compare that to 50 years ago. Gary looked back, and in 1975, 51 songs were written by a single artist. We've gone from half the pop hits at a given time, written by one person, to now one. Uh, songwriting has just changed so much, where songs just generally don't cut through in pop music if they're written by one person. In the 50s or 60s, a single songwriter, maybe just driving down the road, a song idea pops into your head, you wind up recording it, becomes your latest hit. In the 90s, it's uh, more transitioning to teams of writers and producers where you might have five, six, seven people in a room and maybe one person starts a discussion and it leads to a song idea and, and that person uh, can get songwriting credit for being in on the session. So it's just uh, become something that's evolved more to a group project in hit music than it ever was before. Now, to be clear, my uncle wrote the music. He did have one collaborator, right? It was lyricist. Right, right. But even what you're saying is the idea of just two people on a song is extremely rare these days. In pop music, you still see in rock, there's still a lot of singer-songwriters on the folk Americana side. That's still very common. But for most hit music, yeah, it's just, you know, pop music is so much more produced as well. So by its nature, pop has so many more pieces to it. So it totally makes sense that you're going to need more people collaborating. And artist collaboration is just so much more common as well. You didn't have featured artists uh, 50 years ago. Now, that's such a common thing where there's going to be a vocal and maybe a guest rapper or another guest vocalist, and they're going to collaborate on the writing. Another thing that makes Neil Sedaka so unusual in chart history is that he's one of only about 30 artists to have written and sung three number one songs with two or fewer people. Even more rare, he's one of only about 10 artists who wrote slash sung three number ones with more than a dozen years between his first and last number one hit. What's interesting among so many things about Neil Sedaka's history on the Billboard charts is if you look in the Billboard Hot 100, he hit 30 hits. And beyond that, they spanned four decades. So he had top 20 hits on the Hot 100 in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's really rare in something that's so fickle as pop music. To have that kind of longevity, you're, you're really talking just absolute rarefied air. Just how rare are we talking? I wondered if Gary could give me examples of other pop stars in that same camp. One of the artists that stands out as having done that is Madonna. So she's had top 20 hits in the 80s. 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. And so you're talking artists who can transcend trends. And I think what that comes down to is there's just something about them that's timeless. There are so many acts that maybe they're just tied more to a time, to a specific sound, a specific era. When you're talking about artists like Neil Sedaka or Madonna, Elton John, that can last that long, 
there's obviously something about them that pretty much it doesn't matter at the age of the audience, the era. There's just something that connects with their artistry. I just want to pause for a second here because we're touching on an interesting aspect to this question of success and what makes an artist successful, which is legacy. Chart success doesn't necessarily equal musical legacy. Sometimes they do go hand in hand, like in the case of Madonna. But there are examples of musical icons who surprisingly never had a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100. One thing that struck me as so interesting when I was looking at this data, uh, someone like a Bob Dylan, I don't believe he ever sung a number one hit. You can correct me on that. Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, too. I think those are two great examples of artists who, maybe people don't realize this, never to date had a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 under their own name as a recording artist, but they did have number ones as writers, so that's a great consolation. So the charts tell you what's going on currently, and then it's up to music listeners over decades to write the further legacy. So maybe maybe a, a number 91 hit might wind up being really huge years later. Don't Stop Believing by Journey. That was a number nine hit. People might think that was number one because it's lasted for so long. So in time, a song can become bigger. At the same time, a song that was a number one hit, maybe it doesn't age as well. I had one last question for Gary. Bearing in mind everything we've discussed, was it easier in Neil's day to be successful? Yeah, that's a loaded question. In the 50s and 60s, you really had a handful of prominent artists. So once you were in that club of being successful, you probably got the benefit of the doubt and you were able to keep putting out music. And if it was good and if it connected, then great, your career sustained. Nowadays, there are so many more ways to be popular with so many more platforms. But the downside of that is the same thing. There are so many people trying to get in. I feel like for every example you could bring up of, uh, is it tougher to have longevity now versus then? I feel like you could come up uh, with an argument either way for almost every era. So earlier when I spoke to Will Page, we spoke about the ways in which all these new music platforms have created possibly too much choice. But that got me thinking, how is having so much music to pick from also a good thing? Back in the day, there weren't very many Black artists who were able to succeed or Latino artists who were able to succeed. Kiana Fitzgerald is a music journalist and pop culture critic. She's followed the paths of many artists as they've gone from relative unknowns to mainstream stars. I think the nature of pop music has shifted in that we are just able to pick and choose what we want to succeed. When I think about successful artists, obviously we think about accolades, we think about awards and things like that. But I also think about how is this music connecting to people? I'm thinking about the Drakes and the Kendrick Lamars and the J. Coles, just because I saw them come up at the very beginning. And I saw that they were just hungry mixtape artists who didn't have a label, who didn't have the team behind them that they needed. And those things came later. But there are definitely unconventional paths that people can take to become an embedded artist. So Kiana raises an important point. Nowadays, because of all this choice, there's room for the Neil Sadakas of the world. But there's also room for, as she says, the mixtape artists who never would have had a shot at Billboard glory. There's room for genres upon subgenres of music, 
each with their own audience. There's no clear-cut way to make music anymore. Even the gatekeepers that have existed since the beginning, the labels and the management companies and the people who were really controlling who was going to get a say in the music industry, that level of control has shifted. It's definitely possible to make a pop hit now without a machine behind you. And that means the people who have less and have fewer opportunities can now come out of the gate and be like, hey, I'm here too. I'm willing to, to be a part of this conversation. But of course, even though the traditional walls that barred many people's access to industry success are falling, that doesn't mean it's now an equal playing field. As Kiana put it to me, Black artists are contending with subjects that don't necessarily make for a chart-topping hit. I feel like artists are given different assignments in terms of what they're able to work on. And I'll mention Janelle Monet. She's someone who, you know, saw success with her Electric Lady album and um, Dirty Computer album as well. But as of recent, the songs that she's been releasing have been very focused on Black issues and civil rights issues. You don't have white artists who are having to kind of put their creative interest to the back burner to address a very immediate issue. And I think that that's something that also affects the larger framing of pop music as well, because you have Black artists and artists of color who are having to speak to issues that are right in front of us that are affecting us on a daily basis. And that's not going to hit number one unless it's an extreme anomaly. And I think that that contributes as well to who we see as successful and who we see as at the top of their game, at the top of the charts, if they land there. And I don't think that that should be ignored. As Kiana said, the traditional metrics of success, charts, album sales, etc., don't give us the whole picture. They don't always reflect the wider cultural issues and conversations that are happening. Traditional metrics are only one piece of the story. And who should get to decide what the story is anyway? I think when we look back on this year or last year, for example, we'll see the end of year lists of what were the best songs of the year and what were the, the top albums of the year. And it won't always reflect what was held in the moment, especially when I think about summer 2020. It was, as many people called it, the summer of reckoning. And now we've kind of moved beyond that. And what we think about in terms of success, in terms of pop, in terms of what is going to be looked at in 50 years, I don't think the full story will be there. And I think that that's a caveat of pop music is that it doesn't always necessarily involve some things that really matter. Sometimes it's just, this was the dominant song of the year because of streaming, because of sales, because of whatever. But when you look at the impact of songs, I think that should be the true level of assessing what makes something successful or not. Sometimes the numbers don't tell the whole truth. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Kiana really got me to stop and reflect on the meaning of success and what it means to be a pop star today. It's not just about how many albums you sell or what number you reach on the Billboard Hot 100. It's about the message and how you connect with an audience. I'm thinking about musical legacy beyond what the charts tell us. Which brings me back to Uncle Neil. 
In my view, he's someone who's had success as a pop artist in the traditional sense, but also someone who's been able to transcend changes in a way that's given him a longevity beyond his impressive chart stats. Remember what the Scotsman Will Page said earlier about Neil's song Amarillo. Statistically, this is an insane song. It charted number one in the UK three decades after Uncle Neil wrote it in 1971. It was the number one song in sales for all of 2005 in the UK. Neil didn't even sing the version of the song that became such a big hit. Instead, it was Tony Christie. And the song wasn't even a top 40 hit in America. Yet every crazy soccer fan in Britain, and let's be real, they are crazy, know the song. For his part, Neil has a funny way of reflecting on his popularity in the UK. I could not get a job here. After 1963, the Beatles and Rolling Stones and all the English came in and took over the music business. So I moved to London. I figured if the Beatles went to New York, I would go to London. Uncle Neil, this has been a true pleasure. I love you. and I love you. Um, And congratulations and on your great success. Well deserved. Thank you. It means a lot. And hopefully I'll uh, see you around the bend, either when you come to New York or I come out to Los Angeles. Please do. I would like that. All right. Love you. We'll talk later. Love you, babe. Bye-bye. Well, folks, we did it. It's the end of the season. And I have to be honest, I've been nostalgic thinking about all the episodes we've done so far. And one of the things that strikes me is how seemingly small data points can often speak to larger truths about society. By coming together to talk about things like our belief in ghosts, our sleeping habits with our partners, or even our fears of talking on the phone, we realize we're actually all connected. Margins of Error is a production of CNN Audio and Magnificent Noise. It's produced by Sabrina Farhi, Eva Walchover, Jesse Baker, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk, with support from Lindsay Abrams and Alexander McCall. Thanks as well to Lisa Namaro, Robert Mathers, and Kira Posey. Special thanks this week to Gary Trust and Sabrina Shulman for their research. Our sound designer is Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. And me? Well, I'm Harry Ent. Stay tuned to this feed. We'll see you again soon. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.